Hey, I'm Steve Folland. How are you doing? Thanks for listening. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by FreeAgent, the award-winning cloud accounting software loved and trusted by over 60,000 freelancers and small businesses, myself included. Join me and them. Claim your one-month free trial at freeagent.com slash being freelance. Right now, though, let's find out what it's like being freelance for kids app designer Chris O'Shea. I definitely used to work way too many hours when I was in London and I used to take on all the projects even if they weren't the best paid. You know, going out for looking for freelance versus having a product that you can sell, it is a lot harder but actually the nice thing about it is, you know, the apps that I've released two, three years ago still bring a little bit of money in. I basically became the stay-at-home dad, tried to sort of work between nap times and evenings. And I was doing a project for the Royal London Hospital and I'd have to take him with me, go prepared with enough snacks and colouring things and toys to sit him at the table for an hour and you have to make it work, don't you? Yes, so there is Chris, who is a, well, he does many things, but let's go with freelance kids app designer. That'll make sense as we discuss his uh, discuss his story. He's based in Somerset, which is a very nice part of the UK, very pretty part of the UK, quite remote. And no doubt that will come up in the story as well. Don't forget, there is so many episodes of this podcast, over 150 guests, and you can find them all wherever you found this podcast, including beingfreelance.com where you can also search through there's like a little search field so if you're looking for a specific thing uh, you can use that so beingfreelance.com where we also have articles and the vlog and if you like what you hear or read or see it would be amazing if you can share it tell us about it on twitter or on instagram or tell a real person in real life at a meetup whatever it might be if you're writing a blog post and you found something useful and you reference it then yeah tag me in on twitter so that i can have a read and see what you're up to then that would be great right now though shall we crack on and chat to this week's guest who is freelance kids app designer chris o'shea hey chris hello steve well, as ever, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? Well, I've always been um, working for myself, really. I sort of dropped out of college when I was 18, and um, I've never really had a normal job with a payslip since. I went to study for my A-levels, but I wasn't really enjoying the subjects and how they were being taught. And I sort of taught myself how to make websites from a library book. And I sort of came out of college with no, um, with no A-levels and started looking in the yellow pages for local companies who made websites. And then when I was looking at their websites, I didn't like what any of them were making. So I decided to sort of start on my own with no experience. And I was 18 years old and um, sort of went on a, a, a crash course in working for yourself and running a business. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a... Were you still, were you still living at home? Yeah, I was still living at home and I have four brothers as well. So I had my own phone line put in to my bedroom and I started making websites, you know, for local businesses and I would get phone calls and basically have to sort of hide from my brothers who are making noise, you know, <laughs> down the hall. And so then I moved out of my parents' house, but I'd also rented an office in the centre of the town. And, you know, things were getting busier and busier. And I'd looked at sort of two friends who I was at college with and basically hired them to one of them was a designer and one was a developer. And we basically made websites for local businesses. 
But after about four years, I just couldn't make enough money to kind of keep the company going. And at the time, there were all these kind of big web agencies crashing and all these big dot-com retail sites were going under. And also, I was very inexperienced. I was kind of 21 by that point. And um, so I had to close the company down. So I sort of had four years of running this company and making websites for local businesses, but I didn't have any qualifications. So I decided to go to university. Um, I went to university in Plymouth, down in Devon. I worked hard on my degree because of obviously failing in the business. I wanted to make sure I came out of this time with my with my uh, qualifications. And I sort of did a digital art degree that was sort of a combination of technology and sort of cultural art thinking. Then in, I moved to London in 2005. I basically found some freelance work for a company that kind of make museum, interactive museum exhibits. I worked for them for about 10 months. They asked if I wanted to stay on full time and you know to go on payroll and I declined and said I wanted to kind of go freelance so that was kind of my first official you know working for myself on my own being a freelancer from that point onwards. Mm. What was it at that point that made you think no I don't want to work for you full time I want to be by myself? It was kind of a combination of I get a bit itchy feet if I'm in one place for too long and also they were pushing me more towards the website of their work because museum installations don't really pay very much money so the website was a you know much more a stable base you know to earn money from and i wanted to keep doing this kind of interactive experimental art stuff oh, right. so yeah kind of landed on my feet arriving in london and then then the work hard work of trying to find some some stuff from there yes yeah, so how did you go about finding those next freelance jobs doing the sort of thing you wanted to do well i basically you know you obviously make a website you make a portfolio but i only had kind of three sort of published projects through them and I basically just started approaching all the companies that I knew that made these interactive installations and went to them showed them what I'd made I did a lot of work in a short space of time some of it perhaps underpaid but just to get kind of my foot in the door I'd also sort of over the years built up a, an authority voice on you know on this field people would you know, know me for doing you know, for understanding this field and what kind of things are out there so I'd have a blog that, I, that was popular at the time called Pixel Sumo. Um, I also co-founded a series of events called This Happened, which was a kind of a free event you go to where you hear someone talk about their project and the process they went through to make that project within this kind of field. And at its height, we had about 300 people in the audience. This was a kind of a free event, so we wanted to make it accessible to students. So kind of combination of like, you know, doing the work and blogging and running these events, you know, on this field makes you this kind of authority on that subject. So you'd often get phone calls to kind of come in and pitch stuff to ad agencies or production companies. Cool. And how long did that go on for? Like, so if you were in London for 2005, so suddenly we were in 2006, like how long were you doing that kind of thing for? I lived in London for about 11 or 12 years. And I did a combination of making installations for myself. So getting commissioned to me personally under my own name by you know, museums or art galleries or festivals, chasing kind of arts money and grants and a combination of that plus being a kind of creative technologist. So I would, uh, you know, some companies or artists need an installation making that has some involvement of technology and people interacting with it. And I would go in and help them deliver that either through coding or, you know, production things. So I kind of did that for 11 years, you know, got to show my work all over the world and kind of Alaska and Tokyo and South Korea and all kinds of places and lots of conference talks and things. But eventually got married and had kids and we sort of decided we wanted to kind of get out of London life really with two children, one of them about to start school. Um, we thought now was as good a time as any to push out. 
When you were doing that work for, you know, about 10, 11 years, and some of it was being commissioned direct to you, were you hiring other people? Were you tempted to grow the, a company like you had before? No, and, and the, the main reason why is because of the failure of my business when I was much younger. That made me really realise how to kind of manage money and also that I didn't want to have staff and an office again. And I was quite happy kind of going between different companies and, you know, doing bits of their projects. Um, and I had some projects that were long, quite long, so a year or two long, but other ones that were very short, like you had three months to, to make and deliver. But I've never really had that desire to kind of lead a team and to, to run a big company again. Yeah. What what did you learn from that very early experience? Like, what was it that you took away from it? Well, to always, you know, be projecting forwards in terms of your money, to make sure you're charging enough, to be always marketing yourself. So when I was doing the web stuff on my own, when I was much younger, I had, I was trying to do the business side, but I was a really bad salesperson. So, you know, you'd hire a salesperson to, who would be much better at getting that work in than you were. And this is also because it was working in a very small you know, small town in Somerset where there wasn't much work going on and local businesses didn't really want to pay very much anyway. After moving out of London, I sort of decided to concentrate on my new business, which is Cowley Hour, which was making games for kids. I see. So you became a dad and that changed your your outlook? A little bit. Actually, I, I kind of started doing this before, but my outlook changed slightly with kids in that all of my interactive installation work has been about people and play and how they play in a space together. And I started experimenting and made a, an, an iPhone app that lets you turn your phone into a toy car with like Lego bricks. And I realized at that point that if I wanted to kind of put out more apps, I needed, I needed a brand and a company to put it out under uh, rather than my own name. And so that kind of came first. And now that my children are a bit older and we actually play video games together, it made me realize that I don't want to just make apps that keep kids occupied and busy at the restaurant or, you know, on the airplane, but actually wanted to make games that parents and children could play together. So I've recently kind of rebranded the company, relaunched with a new game with that as a focus. So the kids, having the kids has made me realize that shift in direction from making just apps for kids to making games that parents and kids can play together. Wow. So there's obviously a big change there, like going from... I guess, taking on a project where a client is paying you money and it could go on for a year and it's month by month and there's that security as you go through and see something through to the end to making your own app, making your own product and not knowing if people will buy it or anything like that. How have you coped with that change? Yeah, it's massively different and it's really hard because the kind of mobile space is very hard to make money in. And, you know, it's enough for me as, as an individual in a company to get by, but it wouldn't support having a team of people making these apps. But yeah, the mindset of, you know, going out for looking for freelance versus having a product that you can sell, it is a lot harder. But actually, the nice thing about it is it's not passive income because obviously you work very hard to get it to that point. But, you know, the apps that I've released two, three years ago still bring a little bit of money in each month. So collectively, all of those app sales sort of build up. So the hardest thing at the moment is the, the, the shift in the market. So parents are a lot less likely to buy sort of premium mobile games, which means you pay up front for a game versus downloading something for three that might contain, you know, advertising or in-app purchases. So it's it's trying to kind of keep up with the times, but also I still want to be ethical in the way that I approach my work and not just put out 
you know, I'm, I'm not playing at games just to make money. I'm trying to put out sort of high quality products that I'm proud of and people can trust aren't going to try and sort of uh, steal or upsell from their kids. Mm. You've obviously got your designer hat on, your creator hat on, but presumably a lot of work has to go into getting the word out there for it. Yeah, and it's, you know, so I, I sell my games on Apple, Google and Amazon on the mobile stores. And by far the biggest factor in your sales is getting featured by those platforms and having those relationships but that's getting harder and harder to have now and you know the changes in the app stores the front pages of the app store which is where most people look for their products those changes change over time and so like on the apple app store for example there's a today tab now so the front page is the today tab that will change you know every day as opposed to having a feature for a week but beyond that it's kind of like getting people to play the videos on YouTube that, that young children might watch or, you know, six-year-olds might watch, sending it into bloggers and reviewers, but that's becoming much harder because those sites aren't re- reviewing apps as much anymore. So it is a definitely a constant uphill battle. You know, when a single person with low marketing budget, it's very hard. Mm. You said you stepped away from London for like the life reasons rather than rather than the work reasons. So how's, how's your work-life balance looking? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely used to work way too many hours when I was in London. And I used to take on all the projects that I could, not that I could find, but that sort of appealed to me, even if they weren't the best paid. And that was doing the blogging and the events, I was just working, you know, ridiculous hours. Now, my wife is working full time. I basically work four days a week between nine and three. So between school hours, take the kids to school, take the kids to nursery, pick them up, take them to the club or the lessons or whatever they're doing after school, play dates. And I'm trying to discipline myself to do a little bit in the evenings a couple of times a week. But by the time you've had the kids and done the school run and everything, you're a bit too exhausted to, to carry on. So I'm finding that uh, transition hard. But when I was living in London and we had our first child when he was 10 months old, my wife had returned to work full time as she had to finish her teaching qualification. So I basically became the stay-at-home dad. So I was still freelance, but I was stay-at-home dad. And that year, obviously, I didn't get any very, very little work done. And I tried to sort of work between nap times and evenings. And it sort of made me really appreciate actually how hard it is to look after children um, <laughs> full time. And I was doing a project for the an installation for the Royal London Hospital, and I'd have to take him with me. And I, you know, I'd travel into Shoreditch to the company for meetings, and I'd go to Whitechapel, and I, you know, I'd take my, you know, one and a half year old, two year old toddler with me, and just say, "Look, this is the situation. You know, here's my child, and go prepared with enough snacks and coloring things and toys to sit him at the table for an hour." And you know, it never really works because they always want attention, and you know, they never sit still, but. You have to make it work, don't you? And that's how you do it. That is great, though, that you did, you know, that you could say that to the people that you were working with. I think I couldn't do it if it was a new client. You know, if you went up straight for a first client, I think it would be very hard. But because I'd sort of already started working with them and this this production company, and it's an easier thing to do. But it's either that, or I don't, or I don't do the project. So <laughs> it's uh, you know, I remember lugging the pushchair up a flight of stairs in Whitechapel, and then you know, rushing to the to the hospital there and yeah it was a tough time and it's definitely got a lot easier as they've got older we've got one child not in school yet so once once they start school then obviously i get a bit more bit more freedom over those five days but yeah it's definitely a lot more chill down here now and um you know we can walk to school it's very close because you're in the countryside and i'm not 
worried about having to work so much because of the price of rent in London makes it a lot easier. And what do you do when it comes to like school holidays? So thankfully, my wife is in education, so she's off during summer holidays. So I'll, you know, take two weeks off and then have, you know, the rest of it, I'll work those five days a week. Yeah. God, that's handy. (laughs) Very handy. Very handy. That's nice. Although, you know, I guess there can still be that, I know, almost feeling of guilt in the half term that you feel like you should be doing something with them, even though, you know, this is a great opportunity to do work. Exactly. And it's, it's, um, I guess if I was a lot richer, then I could just say I'll take off all the all the school holidays as well. But it's hard when you've got those limited hours during the working week to get enough done. You miss them and you want to be able to go and do things and go out on those days because it's the only days that you have with them to go and do day trips. Obviously, there's weekends, but there's so many you know birthday parties and things to go to as well. It's tricky. Yeah. At what point did you stop doing the events? Was that like when you became a dad? Because that sounded like a pretty big thing. Yeah, so well, this the event, sorry, was called This Happened. And um, because it was a free event and we were putting it on every couple of months and it became a huge amount of work because we'd have to then find sponsors to cover the venue and, you know, the bar and things. And I just found that there was a kind of a pressure point where I was doing all these things and I had to say, right, I'm going to stop blogging and I'm going to stop, you know, running this event. So that then gave me more time to sort of free up and basically look at what work I wanted to be doing. This was before we left London. So we managed to find some other, you know, like-minded people who to, to take on the event and keep it running. So it still runs in London now. Ah. The event has also spread to other countries and other cities. They've they've taken that format of the you know ten minute talk about one project. They run their own events around that as well. And you can go to the website and kind of watch all the videos. That's really cool. Well, good for you. So something you created has spread and and still lives on. Like, was there a point where you think, oh, I, I know, I kind of want to kill this, but at the same time, everybody's finding it valuable and yet I don't have enough time and like... Exactly, especially with, you know, two two other kind of founders of that event as well. And, you know, it does become a point when you just have too much on and you have to look at, you know, all the all the pans you're trying to keep boiling or juggling. Yeah. Was it easier running something though, do you think, in a collaboration like that? Yeah, definitely. Because you could, you know between you decide what you're going to be doing and you you have a much bigger reach as well in terms of their audiences and people who follow them and yeah I I wouldn't want to do it on my own definitely yeah how did you manage the business side of things like obviously it's it's, it's almost like three chapters to this it's like your web business but we've, we've kind of covered that but then there's like when you were doing all those freelance projects for 10 years let's start with that bit like how are you dealing with it then yeah I mean I always I would never have worked without a 50% deposit or, you know, splitting it up 20, 20 something and making sure that I got some up front so that if I was late paid or there was an issue, I'd at least have something there from it. And this is from, you know, understanding how that worked previously and not getting paid. And yeah, just, you know, sort of making sure that I sort of forecasted forwards to see when I might have a dry spell in work or a gap in work and therefore no money to make sure that I was then going out to find companies, you know, I'd go and freelance a, a company for a week or something and then make sure I'm scheduling in meetings because a lot of projects take a long time to get off the ground. You know, they might do six months, nine months between meeting somebody and actually getting any work. So sort of not leaving it too late until you've got no work and got no money before you start trying to find the next job, basically. And of course, it's now changed that, you know, instead of selling myself as a service, I'm trying to sell my 
products to to parents and i've got my you know my my paying customers so to speak or my you know the supplier is apple google and amazon so they take 30 percent of the sale of an app and you get 70 percent roughly and you get your sales reports but then you get paid about a month or two after the month end of that month of the sales report so you kind of know if you've had a low month in sales that in a month and a half's time that's the amount of money you're going to receive on that specific day and it's very regular and you can put it in your calendar so then I can therefore look at it and say, right, I need to find a little bit of freelance to help me. And that's kind of what I do now. Some, you know, days here and there of consulting for kind of different companies and, you know, going on site, going up to London, going up to Bristol, which is tricky because it, on those days, it means I then have to find family or friends to help with the children outside of school hours. Yeah, that's that's kind of good, though, isn't it? Like not the childcare bit, but the <laughs> which is always a nightmare, but more the fact that okay, you might have a bad month of sales with an app, but you know that in advance of of when that money would be coming in. That's that's quite useful. Yeah, but there's not much there's not much lead time to that. So, you know, I, I can see that, for example, at the moment, sales are sort of trending downwards because I've, I need to release new products, but I then will do freelance work to get money in so that I can then pay freelancers to help me make those apps so whilst i do all the design and the code and the marketing i hire illustrators and animators and sound people to you know do those parts of the app so that they so that they're good games but obviously i need money to be able to pay those people so i sort of goes in waves of me doing freelance for other people to get money in to pay other freelancers <laughs> to help me make my games how do you find being not a boss but um a leader of those people it's good. I just, I always think that I'm probably, I'm not a terrible client to them, but I, I put a lot of love into the products I make. So I don't keep going back requesting loads of changes, but I do spend a long time trying to get the detail right in the thing I'm making. So I, I make sure to try and say, well, you know, can you do, can you do this bit more for me, but then how much is it going to cost me? So it might be that they have to do extra work for me on it beyond what I, you know, what I'd asked for. But I make sure to compensate for that, having been a freelancer and knowing what that's like. And they, you know, they've obviously remotely working for me. So we use Slack and we use Skype and we use Dropbox and all of these things to try and sort of keep organised. Yeah. And you said about, you know, like topping up your income by taking on freelance consultancy and other projects. How are you like marketing yourself to those people, though? Is that just a, like a historical web of connections that you've built up? Yep, exactly. So what I need to do realistically is have a new portfolio that says I do freelance this, this and this now and be a bit a bit more proactive about that. Whereas at the moment, because of busyness, I've basically gone back through to old connections of people who have worked for in the past or people who have met at events or people who have been interested in me previously and said, you know, I'm available for short term projects. And, you know, then I'll go in and do like help them on their pitches or brainstorming work in this field in, in the field that I was in previously or um, looking at kids game markets and what people are doing yeah and so mostly now you work what from home I'm I'm presuming in that bit or do, do you work out out of the house I work from home at the moment I did have a, a desk at an office in the town. I've used various co-working spaces over the years. I do find it's a bit of a mixed bag. Sometimes I like the focus of being on your own and being quiet with your headphones on. And other times I really like the social side of being able to chat to people. But that's what I do miss about London is you can go to a co-working space that's full of people who might be like-minded and working in similar fields. Whereas 
when you sort of move, move out of the, into the countryside, the people in this office can be completely unrelated fields. So you can't really ask them sort of specifics of like, oh, what do you think about this design? Or, you know, what, you know, what do you think about this if they all work in like property or insurance or, you know, if, if it's very unrelated, non-creative field. So at the moment I'm at home because then also it takes off the pressure of having to pay for a co-working space. So therefore I have to work less on the freelance side. But who knows, that might change if I'm getting a bit cooped up here. <laughs> yeah wicked now i always do this thing where i ask for three facts about yourself to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie what have you got for me chris okay i once fell in a river and had to be rescued by my heavily pregnant wife <laughs> i once broke my arm chasing a cheese down a hill <laughs> and uh, I, on a romantic honeymoon i was sick in a dustbin after trying an underwater scuba bike <laughs> Okay, how did you end up in a river? Well, I was curious to this sort of nice looking bit of driftwood that was sort of floating by. And I kind of leaned in to try and pick it up. But the water was a lot lower than I was expecting. And I kind of fell in. (laughs) How did your wife get you out? Your heavily pregnant wife? Well, the thing is with the river is it was uh, they had a kind of a hard edge bank to it on this bit where I fell in. So there was a, you know, a, quite a drop down. So once I was in the water, I couldn't reach up to the edge from the from the water where I was in. And I had nothing to hold on to, nothing to push my feet against. And then the rest of the bank was just hedges. So she had to sort of, you know, grab a, a, a stick and lay on the floor for me to hold on to that to give me enough sort of purchase to get back up. You broke your arm chasing a cheese down a hill. Yes. Well, it's not as random as that sounds. There is a particular reason why that there's uh, basically a, a, a cheese chase that goes on once a year every spring, basically down the hill called Cooper's Hill in Gloucestershire. So they have this really, really steep hill. It's really bumpy and long grass. And they have these kind of big round cheeses, if you know, like a big cheese wheel. And at the top of this hill, they throw the cheese down the hill. It bounces all the way down to the bottom. And basically you have a a group of people at the top of the hill who have to chase that cheese down the hill. And it's a very big, you know, it's a big popular event. And they have like a big crowd of people down the sides and they have ambulances at the bottom. And the first person who crosses the line gets the cheese and and the, the fame and uh they have like a line of rugby players at the bottom who will like you know bash into you if you if you to try and stop you getting over the line so um yeah so i was trying this out uh, this is a long time ago when i was at uni and i sort of run down it's a lot steeper than you imagine and people sort of flailing around like ragdolls and i broke my forearm um had to be taken off in an ambulance but it was my uh, right arm which is the one I use for my computer mouse so it made it quite hard for about five or six months to do any work and then on your honeymoon you tried an underwater scuba bike and it made you sick yes well I get seasick quite easily and uh, we were on honeymoon and we're on a boat out to sea lots of holiday makers on this packed boat they kind of lowered these scuba bikes into the water and I thought oh, I'd have a go and you sort of climb into it. So your body is in the water, but your head is in this kind of big bubble. And you sort of go under the water on the seabed and you're, you know, you're driving around. But as soon as I got into this contraption, I immediately felt like I was going to be sick. And you're, I was then stuck underwater driving around the seabed with this, in this underwater bike thing. And 
as soon as I got back out onto the boat, I then threw up and, you know, didn't want to do it in the sea because there's all these people coming back on the boat so on a, in, a, in a bin in front of everybody. Oh, God, I don't know. I've never heard of a scuba bike. I'm going to presume that's real. Well, I've been scuba diving a few times, actual scuba diving, and I was sick in the sea and lots of other people were still in it. It was in Byron Bay and there was, you know, like a giant ray you know beautiful majestic and everybody was saying oh, look at this ray and it was swimming right amongst us and i was just like, I, was just like I missed the whole thing and thankfully everybody was too busy looking at the ray to realize what else they were swimming in so i've, I've got sympathy for you there river the river you see if you're listening to this outside of the uk you might think he's making up the thing about the cheese it's just that that exists. It's a well-known thing in the UK that there's some people down south who like to chase a cheese down a hill. And I no doubt if you look put it into YouTube, you will find clips of, of the idiots who do it. Now, the question is, are you one of the idiots? It feels like something you could easily lie about because you've been there and you've seen it, but you never did break your arm. I'm going to say that's the lie. You are correct. Yes! I knew it, which is brilliant because that really does mean that your heavily pregnant wife saved you from a river, which is something I hope is being passed down through family folklore. I'm going to have to Google scuba bike now as well. I've never heard of that. Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Uh, I would say be as productive as you can and make as much money as you can before you have kids. (laughs) Because you will never have more time or more money to yourself than before you have children. As lovely as they are, that's what I would say to someone. Do you know, it's a curious thing, though. You will never have more time. You will never have more money. But do you find that perhaps you're more efficient now that you have less time? No. (laughs) Ah, interesting. Because I am still a, I'm still a terrible procrastinator and I've come to learn to use that procrastination time to sort of step back from a problem to think about something else. So whilst I work from home, I might go and do some laundry, household bits and bobs, and then kind of come back to the problem. I'm trying to be more efficient and I, I understand all these things of, you know, eating the frog first thing in the day and doing all these productivity things. But yeah, it's, the kids can get, the very young children at least can be quite exhausting so it's sort of i get back and it takes me a little while to sort of decompress and to get into work mode before i can sort of crack on with it yeah but that sounds like you're getting to know how best you work it can almost be frustrating when you have children that you can't do what you're trying to do or what you're wanting to do but maybe you've been through that phase of frustration and come out the other side thinking no i just accept that now and i'm and i know my way around what how best I work. Yeah, exactly. I, I now try and say to myself, like on a Friday, for example, when I have my daughter who's not at school, instead of thinking to myself, oh, I've got all this project due and I, I can't get this done and I'm, I'm really frustrating, I try and sort of say, hold on a minute, you know, this is the only time you're going to get with your kids before they go to school. You should enjoy it and, and, and stop trying to do everything at once. 
yeah no that's nice chris thank you so much for chatting to us you if you've got kids of what age would you say you, for your apps for example uh sort of th- between three and eight depending on which which game okay so if you've got kids of that age please do check out cowley owls game if you search for that or of course there will be links at beingfreelance.com so that you can check out chris's website and then you know f- find the various games the the interesting thing is that we used to play was it little digits little digits yeah yeah little digits was like one of the first games we ever got for our uh, our son when he was really little and loved numbers on on the ipad like the first ipad that we ever got and then years later i stumble across chris in a facebook group i think it was the doing it for the kids facebook group which is for self-employed parents which is awesome by the way i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well and um yeah i was like oh my god you you're the guy behind that so yeah cowley owl games make sure you check them out being freelance.com as ever there are links through for all of our guests over 150 guests now so if you've enjoyed this please do go and listen to some more remember it doesn't matter what they do for a living it's all about the being freelance doesn't have to be the same uh, job as you and of course why not check out the vlog as well what i'm up to as a freelancer you can find that at beingfreelance.com or on youtube search for steve folland f-o-l-l-a-n-d Oh, and just one more thing that I always forget to do. If you've enjoyed this as well, if you could do me a favor and review it wherever you get your podcasts, such as like the iTunes store, but you know, wherever it may be, then that would be great. And of course, tell other freelancers that you know as well to boot. Thank you so much for listening though. And um, Chris, thank you so much for talking and sharing your story and all the best being freelance. Thank you very much, Steve. Good to talk to you.